Welcome to Episode 4 of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of, the oper- of operations work. Last week, we talked a little bit about Graphite and other time, time series databases, and I have some follow-up to handle there. Um, a lot of the tools are actually using Elasticsearch as the time series database and querying it directly rather than using it as simply as a data store. There's a number of interesting projects around this. Grafana 2.5 will talk to it directly and do aggregations live. There's another tool that the Elasticsearch folks have recently released called TimeLion that does some interesting visualizations based on the data as time series. So you're going to put those links up with the podcast, right? Because I totally last week did not realize that Elasticsearch actually had tools for statistical analysis built in. And it's actually a pretty deep library of them. So yes, I will add links to the show notes for that. Because um, the last podcast, I was totally wrong. I also ragged on Kibana for a little bit in terms of being difficult to use and having some some rough edges. If you get up to a Kibana 4.3 and a higher release, there, a lot of those rough edges are getting smoothed out. There's a better way to do um, Boolean aggregations for filtering and other pieces. That, of course, requires license search 2.x rather than the 1.0. Six seven branch that most people are using right now, but it, there is a brighter future ahead. So I apologize for slamming it quite so hard. This week we are going to be talking about programming languages in operations work, as well as packaging and the the related pieces that go along with this. So I guess we should start with uh, talking about uh, some of our favorite languages and why we like to use them. So Brandon. I love I love 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 Perl. And I hate that anybody else ever uses it. The best solution for Perl, unfortunately, is that nobody ever writes anything in Perl ever again. Um, I've done some amazing hackery and trickery and magic with Perl, and I've seen... Oh, I've seen beautiful, beautiful Perl code. That's a work of art. But it also allows you to write really, really horrible code at incredible speed and build an unmanageable web of dependencies and versioning and other bits that are just completely unsupportable going forward, unpackageable and unmaintainable. So I've never seen worse spaghetti code than Perl. Perl is magic and it's dangerous. Don't use it. (laughs) I'm also a big fan of Python just from a pragmatic sense. Most systems have Python installed. Usually reasonable versions and accessible libraries and most OSs have the main packages you need already set up as OS level packages so you can very easily add consistent packages to your to your hosts python batteries included yeah and they have a, they have a decent um, virtual environment so you can you can shell off a oh i need a different version of the python interpreter i need a different version of the system libraries i need a different version of these other things and get reasonable repeatable code it's not as straightforward as as statically compiled languages are, but you can get, for operations work, you can get some really nice, clean results that are repeatable over a wide range of platforms, which is incredibly handy. And uh, probably my favorite language is Ruby. I know I'm very hipsterish with that, but uh, <laughs> uh, I just Cheers I just does have the... long hair and that hipsterish <laughs> kind of curl going. And uh, I just, uh, I don't know, it, 
I, I started in, and rails is what brought me to Ruby. I started with rails back when I can't remember if it was officially one, two, or I guess when they started with the two O release. Um, so that really is what brought me on to Ruby. And then I started doing it for systems work and, and obviously as uh, configuration management came on the scene and there was puppet, both puppet and chef, both of them written in Ruby, although I guess that's not that statement is no longer true for Puppet or is not going to be true for Puppet much longer. Um, I also like uh, Python for the reasons that, that Brendan stated. It's especially in a RHEL environment, almost every type of library imaginable is already packaged and at a reasonable level, if not with the, the core OS, uh, it is an Apple. Um, and I've been experimenting with Go, but... Uh, I'm not a classically trained programmer, so statically typed languages really give me uh, headaches. Well, back to Ruby for a second. One of the things that is both a blessing and a curse about Ruby is the gem packaging system and the ability to do bundling within a project so you can say, this web application needs this specific version of these 10 libraries, and this other one that we're deploying on the same host next to it needs a different version of all those libraries because they have, they have different other dependencies. And it actually works, and you can deploy them properly. And when you when you build your packages for the application, it has the right vendored bits included. So you don't have to worry about, oh, well, this host has Ruby 2.2 2 .2 on it, and this one has 1.9 on it, and this one has these versions of the MySQL drivers, and this one has the Kafka stuff I want. And no, you, you just package it up correctly with the application and then when you deploy it, you have what you need local to the application. Yeah, I, I wish there was more bundler-type things, or bundler from different uh, languages. Which I know, I think there actually is, they're speaking of packaging for Go, I think there was, or there is work of a bundler-esque type thing for Go. There are several other uh, non-Google projects aimed at doing some dependency management work for Go. I've not done a lot of packaging and dependency stuff in Go, Jack. I know that you have done more. Can you speak a little bit about that? I've done a lot less than than I would like to sound knowledgeable about. Um, I have mostly, uh, uh, being a Go fan and being a fan of, of what one can do with statically typed languages, um, I have actually tried to stay very close to the to how Google has designed uh, Go to operate, and I haven't used a lot of of external tools. Um, I found I found the design of the Go language uh, very pragmatic, um, not always what one expects from a programming theory point of view, uh, but exceedingly pragmatic, and and teaching one to. Uh, properly take care of error messages and do basic uh, sanity in your programming that that a lot of the uh, uh, scripted languages help us ignore. Um, I've never been a big fan of the exception model of handling errors. Um, that that just seems like there's multiple paths uh, to deal with to to deal with uh, catching errors and how to recover from them. And I, I'm much more comfortable with things that reliably return an error code, and that's uh, based deeply in the design of Go. I found it to be exceedingly efficient to write code in um, and 
get really efficient code out. So I've been able to deploy um, quite a few little projects that do things at massive scale that have really blown away. Um, like StatsD, I have a, a StatsD proxy written in Go that can do eight, ten times the amount of traffic that uh, one of ITSY StatsD daemons can do and not blink an eye. Well, that's also um, Node.js or JavaScript effectively versus Go, right? <laughs> it is JavaScript, but it's, you know, event-driven, so it's for servers and stuff, right? Well, I mean, the Atwood law kicks in that anything that can be written in JavaScript will be written in JavaScript, but it doesn't always mean it's the right choice. I've seen too much in JavaScript. Let's see. I did a lot of Python in my in my storied past. I still do a lot of Python. Um, I like Python because there's usually one way to do most things. I like Python because it also sort of enforces uh, good programming practices. I like Python as an educational language, although few people use it in education. Coming from um, a Perl background, I started in Perl because I wasn't a classically trained programmer in any form. I, I fell into this job having had my hobby turn into a real profession a bunch of years ago. And Perl was what I got into because it fit the need of the project I was working on at the moment, and it was powerful and it was easy to learn. But coming off of Perl, going into Python, it was so refreshing to have, no, 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 no. You must use proper white space and indentation. You can't write horrible things that quickly. You have to really try to write horrible things. I was always taught to indent my code very well and clearly uh, from a readability perspective. And when I moved over to Python and it's all about indentation is to make uh, blocks in the code, it just sort of flowed naturally and I lost all the cruft um, that really got in the way of reading my code. And I stopped wearing out the semicolon key. Yeah, I find that the hardest when I change around from like Ruby to Python is that I always forget to do the semicolon after a, an if or, or, or inside of a, a control block or whatever. And I'm like, what in the world? Yeah, there was a, a time recently that I was writing, I was maintaining an old Perl application. I was writing in Python and I was doing puppet work. So that's effectively Ruby. And they're similar enough to get you in trouble to go, okay, do I have to put a comma at the end of every line or is it a semicolon or is it a... No, it's just you know, just just enough tabs or whatever it is, and that can be very frustrating to try to context switch between programming languages in the same hour. One thing that that I wish was better in Python, I wish they had first class support for regular expressions. Yes, that is really the thing I miss. Uh, that's really the the saving grace of Ruby as a language. I try not to touch Perl because I usually find myself in an unmaintainable mess pretty quickly. Well, the rule of thumb about Perl that I have is if it, if all of the code fits on one line, or sorry, one page, it's probably okay. If you can read all of it, with just pull back a little bit from your desk and look at the code and it all fits there on one page, yeah, that's probably a reasonable thing. You're, you're hacking out some element of a text file or you're doing some transformation to other pieces of data. But once you get to modules and, you know, thousands of line Perl modules or Perl code, it, it you can't get back out of that easily. And you're better suited in a better language. There is no language 
where a function should be larger than one terminal screen. Of course, my terminals have gotten a lot longer over the years. Yeah, mine are now the height of a 24-inch monitor turned on its on its head, so... <laughs> that, sir, is what we call cheating. Of course. That's why we're in this business, right? <laughs> I was once told by a very wise man, if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. And then, and then speaking of Python, I, I think it brings up, uh, I, I always text my, set my text editors to do uh, spaces instead of tabs and two spaces. Oh, you're in the two space camp. Yes. Because of Python, if you do four spaces, it, if you're in a, you know, multiple levels deep, if you're uh, restricting yourself or trying to obey the 80 character uh, column rule, you're going to quickly run out of room. Man, I'm a PEP8 compliant kind of person. I really like my four spaces. And it's, I think it's very similar to the way that I was originally taught programming. And what what gets me about Go, um, they've done so much work to define an actual standard for how Go code should be formatted. And that that work is laudable and has done so much to to help bring together the Go community and make readable code that's easy to maintain. But their indentation is tab-based. And I haven't used tabs in anything for quite a while. I had to spend some good quality time with them to let me use tabs again. And usually tabs are represented by eight spaces. What line? Wow. I love tabs personally. I think they're a much better better tool for indentation because you can easily move between indentation levels without worrying about did somebody else write this as two spaces or three spaces or four spaces or eight spaces what craziness is that and i think that's that's part of the the goal with the the go language um styles yeah but if you're using a sane text editor you can also use a capital e or capital b or lowercase b and e to get to the beginning or end of that said word to begin with so but if you're not on a platform that has your favorite text editor on it and you need to edit the code, knowing that you hit left arrow, right arrow to, to move one space, like, oh, well, I'm moving up one, one level of indentation and down one, one level of indentation. And there's no, there's no worry there. And you can have your text editor display a tab character as as many spaces on the screen as you like. So if you want it to be two, you can make it two. Oh, sir, you've, you've hit upon my, my evilness. I make them display all tabs as four spaces. Exactly. <laughs> and the thing is, Jared can look at the same code and have have it display with two spaces, and then he's happy. So I think tabs are, are far superior in that sense. Tabs fall down for me when I'm copying and pasting code out of a text editor into a terminal window or into other things, and the OS has decided that, no, that, that's spaces, not tabs, and then things get all kinds of screwy. Yeah, mixing spaces and tabs is bad in any language. It's just poor hygiene. It's like not brushing your teeth in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> a number of people have been talking about the programming language Rust that I haven't had a chance to dig into because of free time constraints. But it seems to have a lot of the benefits that Go has in terms of statically typed, statically compiled, easy to, to, to do error handling and other, other pieces. And it was written with operations folks in mind. It wasn't written with... 
oh, we're going to build the next, you know, grand OS or distributed system. It was written with us in mind, and people say very nice things about it. Have either of you played it? It seems that yet? Go and Rust are very much in the same space, but I too have not done a lot with Rust either. And a lot of the the opinionated bits of Go, Rust is very different. So usually folks fall into one of two camps pretty quickly. Yeah, I've I've only done the Hello World example for for Rust, and but I I do feel Rust attracts me a little more than Go, just because of like you said some of those opinionated uh, decisions, uh, but also dealing with Ruby, I, I love opinions. So <laughs> I uh, I've been wanting to learn Rust a little more than than Go lately, personally. It just seems to have a a very devout set of followers, kind of like the Haskell or the Lisp people, not to try to marginalize Rust or anything or or any of these languages but there's a bunch of people who really think that rust is the future of systems programming and that's the right way to do things and it intrigues and there's me nothing wrong with that well yeah when you have enough people together who are who really are passionate about this is this is a good thing it's like oh well they, they have to have some merit right unless you're talking about pearl and then they're just crazy <laughs> and then other crazy news recently apple has actually open sourced their new programming language in the right way, um, Swift. So I guess 3.0 is open sourced or it's on, it's, a, it's on GitHub of all places. And they're building and supporting uh, Ubuntu set of runtimes and packaging for it. And it's not just the language specification, it's a big chunk of the standard library and like a usable chunk of the standard library. And it seems that their goal is to let iOS developers and Mac developers who want to have a web backend that shares code with their application well, you can use the same calls in the same code because it runs natively in other places. And when they imported the Swift language into GitHub, they imported the repository in, they didn't do the, what most people do, which is, oh, initial commit is you know, three years of development. They actually imported the entire history of, of the language, which is kind of interesting to, to suddenly see that kind of disclosure from a company as secretive as Apple on a language that underlies their platform. And I don't have a lot of experience that's, with Swift yet, but it, it, it's intriguing. That's a really strong statement of support for the community they'd like to build for that. And people are now working on package managers and other things for it because, of course, Apple, in their infinite wisdom, has never gotten OS-level packaging working to an acceptable level. Well, don't they, don't they, isn't there actually a package manager by Apple for... Uh, um, What's the name of it? <laughs> For Swift? Swift, yes. I I was reading, well, and they were talking about a, a way to link packages. I wasn't sure if it was actually a, here's how you yeah, install somebody else's package. Yeah, here's uh, Swift Package Manager. Okay. And Chris Latner of the LLVM fame is pretty bright and seems to make good decisions. So Swift is one of those languages that I don't have any actual reason to learn it. I don't have any professional application for it, but I want to. It looks interesting. You're an Apple fanboy. I am. I've been so since I was four years old, so <laughs> I can I can own that one pretty easily. But it's it's intriguing. I like that some of the more popular languages these days um, Scala, Swift, I think Rust, are functional programming languages. Is Go functional as well, or is it only the other one? 
I'm trying to think. I was about to say imperative, but that's not the right word. <laughs> no. <laughs> Object-oriented. <clears throat> there we go. Yeah, I was looking for uh, <laughs> what your actual word was either. Um, Go is both uh, procedural and it doesn't do objects in a classical sense. On your classical C++ sense, if that's what what you define objects by. It uses a system of, of interfaces to uh, match types that are compatible with each other and be able to run the same operation on different types, which is a little bit different. Um, and is definitely, there are lots of rants on the internet about uh, why folks like this and how it uh, is very similar to duck typing and what folks have been really used to in Python and Ruby. And, of course, the other side of, of how this is horrible and how you're supposed to have generics in your programming abilities and insert holy war here. Yeah, some, some of the Apple developers that I follow have been talking about generics and optionals for a while. And it's one of those things that it's like, okay, I need to wrap my head around this because I have a vague idea of what they're talking about, but I haven't really used it until I until I develop something with it and actually get into the meat of how it operates. I don't really... The theory kind of goes over my head until I actually sit down with it. So I think it's 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 getting to be time for me to, to do some more work with that. I mean, in C, you always have a void pointer. Um, but that's really not a lot different than Go's empty interface concept. But it's it also deals with how you interact with the data and how you discover what type it is and 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 how that informs what interactions you can do with it. That makes sense. So I was poking yeah. at some Python packages this afternoon um, that I will have to get packaged because they're not in the OS level repo for Kafka, letting Python talk to Kafka, both um, produce and consume messages because we're looking at using Kafka, the distributed message bus, or as a distributed message bus. So we can pass events from disparate systems without needing a real-time socket or anything open we can just we can put it into a bus and let it get consumed when the receiving side has the cycles to pick it up and and it's written in scala yeah and coffee's written in scala which is nice um i think it's i was very worried about it when i first started playing with it about eight months ago but kafka seems to do all the things in the right way and i've had other coworkers in, in previous organizations that have done functional programming in Scala and Akka and other other frameworks. And I'm really starting to see the, the benefit and the stability you get out of doing stuff properly in functional programming languages. I have I don't have a lot of experience with Scala, uh, but everything that I've touched and looked at that's been written in Scala has really run fantastically well. Um, and I admit being a little nervous at front uh, because it's still based off of the JVM, uh, and I really don't like working in Java because I've found that it's the exception that proves the rule as far as as a resource hog, very heavy and crash a lot application. Yeah, but I guess the, just to play devil's advocate, there is that the tool or the or the programmer. <sighs> <laughs> but uh, I guess one well, could say I'm starting to be convinced it's the programmer, but it shouldn't be that hard to write quality code. 
Right, well, right. It, the the language shouldn't also enable you to be able to to do it that easily either. Which is coming back to it, why nobody should write in Perl, because you can <laughs> write good Perl, but you also can write phenomenally bad Perl so quickly. And a lot of the Java code that I've seen, it's eh, the Scala stuff, generally pretty sharp, pretty rock solid. Yep, I definitely agree. Yeah, there's nothing like folks who write, you know, a latency-sensitive cluster protocol on a high data, both memory and disk I.O. system, say, Elasticsearch. Um, in Java, where JVM garbage collections, if they're not managed correctly, can wipe out your cluster. It's like, guys, did you... I, I know you did it because Lucene's written in Java, and that's the easiest way to get into it, but... It drives me crazy when I watch um, Elasticsearch node go into a long garbage collection. Not to mention that you can't use all of your resources. Yeah. Compressed pointers are awesome until you get to the boundary of compressed pointers. And then, yeah, you can only use 30 and a half gigs of memory for your heat. And again, in a application environment where you're putting as much as you can into heap for caching purposes... Oh, I'm sorry. 30 gigs is not a lot. Which is sad to say these days. But yeah. Circling back a little bit, um, we talked about package managers briefly and OS-level packaging. Do you guys have opinions on which way that, that should go? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you go you go first. <laughs> I in former lives I've spent a lot of time working with RPMs and OS level packaging, uh trying to teach folks OS level packaging and the right way to to build your RPMs so the world is at peace. And yeah, if you've got the time and energy and the intelligence it's possible, but it's a lot harder than it really should be. Uh, and I've discovered very much the same with Debian's. Um, whether one thinks Debian's are more powerful or RPMs are simpler or uh, format aside, I think they both suffer from uh, way too many committees of people trying to decide the quote-unquote right way to package and distribute uh, software that usually all the has other opinions about itself. Um, I would definitely steer folks toward Docker. Uh, there are lots of other uh, build systems out there. Uh, some of the folks at the client I work for have been looking at Bazel. Uh, there's Pants. Uh, these are probably much more the direction you want to be if you if you have uh, locally built software or are trying to uh, build your own CI environment. Yeah, so I, I'm of the opinion that that really, if you're if you're gonna do packages, uh, or packages should stay for the OS. Really, if you're starting to package up things, your your resulting binary for whatever language you're writing in, the actual code to run on servers, it may be fine to use RPMs or, or um, Debian packages, but those should really just be containers or, or tars, essentially glorified tars. Uh, that maybe can describe dependencies. Uh, trying to get any fancier that, or even to commit to the standards, both for 
for um, Apple or, or um, Red Hat standards or even Debian standards are very high in terms of how you where you place things and how you're supposed to break out packages and sub packages and so forth. So I I agree with with Jack that you got to go with Docker or, or even a, a simple tar. Um, I'm I patched really the been... Go compiler so I could build a Debian out of it. <laughs> One should I... not have to patch a compiler. That's that's just a personal rule I have. And that was to build the package for the compiler to install so you could then build other packages, right? Yes. But that's yeah, I, uh, what I like so much about Docker. I think it draws a very a very strong line in the sand um, that allows you to have a base OS image. You can install via RPM or apt uh, other base OS packages you might require. Then you can use the native... Uh, tools that work with whatever your application you're installing, um, Go or Java or or what have you, and do it in the native uh, method for whatever you're trying to build and deploy. And it works so much easier, and you're kept completely isolated from other Docker images, so you no longer have to worry about uh, using uh, the Ruby build utilities to smash some uh, gems all over your file system is going to wind up impacting other services on your your machine. Yeah, I actually I look forward to what's going to transpire from Docker because I, I really am looking for the next generation where we remove this full OS because you you really don't need the full OS in a Docker container because you're already running the kernel and other things that the host OS has. So really, I'd love to see the images get even smaller and get more intelligent and only include the libraries that is required to run the actual code that's inside of the container. And I, and I believe that is coming with this um, uh, AppC uh, consortium that both, you know, CoreOS, Docker, and, and all these other, you know, who's of who in technologies, in the technology space have come together to start working on. I really think that's what, what's going to start shining from that partnership. What was all the silliness about the rocket format deviating or branching off from the Docker container format? I, I didn't catch the news on that properly. Yeah. So I guess the rocket runtime was, was created by core OS and their initial goal was to, and I, and I just misspoke earlier, AppC was their spec, and it was going to run both AppC and Docker images. AppC was uh, CoreOS's new image format, which is supposed to be a little easier. It was more closer, I guess, to TARS, like you could actually TAR things up and it, it'd be an image. Um, however, I don't know what the current status is since... Um, like I said, CoreOS and Docker have joined together to sort of make Docker a de facto standard when it comes to containers. And that it's, it's going to now become an open spec. And I believe that Docker has you know, said we will start taking input from other people beyond ourselves to help drive this. Okay, that makes sense. One of the areas that I am currently kind of weak on is Docker. I've done some stuff at home with it, but I haven't had a chance to use it in more of a, a production environment, which would be, which is the real test of how, how finished it is. And I don't know a lot of people using it in production other than Jack for the 
with the other client that we were talking about a minute ago. And yeah, and it's been a year at this point since I've worked with that client. Um, so that's a lot of time in the DACA world to be to get out of date. But it also means that if it's been running for a year in production and they haven't had any major issues with it, that it's probably done enough that you actually can run a production environment primarily in Docker at this point. Mm-hmm. Although I, I still have some hesitancy towards running Docker at scale and in production. There's still a few things, especially related to logging, uh, that that haven't been solved that I, I, I'm almost waiting to see how it's going to get solved. Because right now your options for logging is to either have your, your application itself handle the logging, like s- ship it to Elasticsearch or some other uh, log ingestion service, or mount or run syslog within the container, which kind of goes against the whole one app per container standard, or mount the system's var log messages or whatever um, log you want to write to and then write to it. So that, I really would like to see that solved. There's also uh, writing logs a standard out uh, in favor of the of 12-factor application design, which I think is, is some of the design-isms there. But I've, I've quickly run into cases where you have multiple log streams. Uh, think Apache with uh, uh, perhaps two log files for each website. Um, and that, that doesn't work that way either. Because then it's hard to separate it out later. I think I, philosophically, I like the idea of the application logging directly to whatever logging pipeline you choose, be it Logstash or Redis or Kafka or whatever it is, because that gets the container and the host out of the business of trying to handle that. But it also adds more complexity to the application design and making sure the application can handle multiple kinds of logging and all of the other pieces that happen there. So... I know it's not a real solution. It's not as easy as one might think to do that in a portable format. So I've been dabbling with Go a little bit, and the thing I like the most about Go is I can build stuff on a 32-bit VM and take the same code over to my Mac and compile and run it, and then take the same code over to my Raspberry Pi and compile it and run it. And it works very well, and once it's been compiled... You just take the binary and you put it wherever you need to, and you're not dealing with a bunch of mess. And I love how how portable a Go binary is once you've built it. It doesn't solve the problem of an, an auto builder building the package, or however. But once you once you get to the point where you can deploy a static binary somewhere, it's a static binary. It doesn't have any external dependencies, and it just runs. And can't you even be adventurous and compile for those other? Uh, uh, architectures on your box. Yeah, I wasn't going to play with that quite yet, but for example, I took um, HashiCorp's Nomad system, and I downloaded the the repo onto my Raspberry Pi, and I made sure I had a current version of Go installed, and I made it, and then I copied it to the other Raspberry Pis, and it just works. And cross-platform code to Raspberry Pis has not been, we'll say, an easier, a shining beacon in the night for the Raspberry Pi. You know, all the ARM stuff and the different versions of ARM and all the other pieces that go along there mean that a lot of code that's written for Linux doesn't really work on the Raspberry Pi. But, you know, Nomad, a fairly complicated scheduling engine for containers, 
boots up nicely, works just normally, and keeps on going. It's like, wow, that, that's that's really that's a pretty slick awesome. way to handle it. <coughs> I'm not sure that Nomad is the right long-term solution for scheduling containers in those pieces because there's there's a lot of magic there, and they don't do... The container yeah, I've been looking yet. for what's going to rise in the ecosystem as far as, as like a Docker container manager. I know CoreOS is doing lots of work there. Um, we have Nomad, which is also very new. Uh, I know lots of folks that have experience with Mesos clusters. Yeah, that seems to be... How did you say that? Mesos? Mesos? Okay. I call it Mesos, but I might be pronouncing it wrong. This is the bad thing about a podcast. You have to learn how to pronounce things. <laughs> Naming things isn't hard. It's pronouncing them afterwards that gets to be the tricky bit. In the correct African click language dialect. God. Yeah, I've heard a number of people say nice things about Mesos, and it seems to be the most fully featured and thought through orchestration platform so far. But it, of course, requires fairly significant you know, infrastructure to get going. And in my home lab, I don't have quite the number of hosts that I would need to get all of it bootstrapped and up and running to a usable state. Yeah. You could just have one zookeeper master and Mesos master and then the rest, you know, slaves. I don't think you realize how overtaxed my machines at home already are. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an Elasticsearch cluster. I've got a Kafka cluster. I've got graphing and logging and all kinds of other pieces sprinkled in through here. Because this is how I test the really stupid outliers of things at night. I say, oh, so Elasticsearch shoot at one's out. Let me let me see how that goes. Oh, it's not done yet. Okay, back off. Ah, uh, the next version of the Go compiler is out. I really need to test that. Especially since they fixed a bug of mine. Or when your internet service provider starts having interesting service problems with your line, you figure out you can screen scrape their router and you can record those gra values to graphite. So when the tech comes out the next time, you can show them. So at, you know, nine o'clock yesterday morning, the temperature outside got to this point and the signal level went to this point and then my connection reset and the modem rebooted. And having data is nice. And then you get into the thing of, oh, well, I can have more data. I can have more data. And now you have another VM that's always running on your network because you're collecting data. And after three or four, and then of you these, have two hundred terabytes of graphite data. Well, I'm not quite there yet, but I have an always running graphite VM. I have an always running DNS VM because I need to have DNS and internal mappings of things. We have media sharing and playback stuff, so we use Plex for that because it's easy to get all the devices looking at the same library without trying to deal with Apple's insane non-working home sharing stuff. And then I have the, oh, well, let's, let's actually do some development work pieces, and I'm overtaxing myself, so. More resources well, yeah. at some point. There's part of your problem. Half of those those VMs you described me could be great Docker containers and use half the resources. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I finally gave up on doing my backups of the NAS to crash plan directly because free NAS can go die in a fire. So I have another VM running that all it's doing is running a Java application and has a couple of NFS mounts so we can see my file server from across the network. It's ridiculous. 
So that's been episode four of the Practical Operations Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.